What a joy to be together, even on a night where it's uh, kind of treacherous out. It's really not that bad, is it? It's, uh, once you get on the roads, uh, it's not so bad. But praise the Lord. Hey, this evening, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. And while you're there, put your finger there in that place and also turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Yep, 28. Deuteronomy 28. Uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at a very difficult time. In fact, it's, it's really a watershed moment in the life of the children of Israel and if I had to put a title on this evening's message, it could be um, there's a phrase, and I have to <laughs> I thought I'd remember it. Um, coming full circle. Coming full circle. And what do I mean by that? Whenever you think of the, the phrase coming full circle, it means that there was something that began. And um, whether it's a promise or a, a prophecy, and God, through the process of time, he brings it right around to the fulfillment of it, and things come full circle. And um, life can be like that sometimes, you know, you, and, and, you know when you're young, you're, you're born, and you're, you're in fetal position when you come out, and when you leave this earth, if you have many years behind you, you sometimes go in that same position, you know, as we get older and older and older, and if, you, if you're fortunate enough to live many years, but it has a way of, uh, of coming full circle, and I'm not talking about the circle of life, okay, this is not the Lion King, uh, <laughs> but coming full circle, and look at me, look at with me, Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're going to look at the first 14 verses and I'm going to go here with you because this is really what is happening here. Uh, God is coming full circle with the children of Israel because he had made promises to them. He uh, gave them uh, prophecy, actually, and told them that there would be blessings of obedience and there would also be curses for disobedience. But let's look at the positive first. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 through 4, notice what it says. Let's read that together. It says, Now if it shall come to pass, if, and notice the, um, this is what they call a conditional promise. Whenever there is an if-then statement, it's conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. That's conditional, right? The promise or the, the certain things are based on conditions. And we know that there are times when God has made promises to us and even to the children of Israel, to the church, and it's an unconditional promise, meaning there's no conditions attached to it. God says he's going to do something and he does it. But there are other times, and this is a good example, uh, when he's speaking to the children of Israel, he gives them a conditional promise. If you do this, then I will do this. And notice in verse 28, or chapter 28, verse 1. Now it came to pass, now, and remember, this passage is being spoken to the children of Israel as they are literally in the area of Moab. After they had come out of Egypt, they'd wandered in the desert for 40 years, and finally they're right on the precipice, they're right on the eastern side of the Jordan River in Moab, and they're about ready to cross over the Jordan River, and by doing so, come into the promised land, the land that God had promised the children of Israel, going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Land that God had promised them. And so as he's rehearsing this there, the Lord, speaking through Moses, tells him, If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that, and there's the condition, that the Lord your God will set, up, set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice the, 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 the condition there. If you obey my commandments, then I'm going to bless you. And I want you to pay attention to this uh, as we go through. God is going to be blessing them and promising blessing for obedience 
And most of the, and, and all of these promises really are based on their, their, their lives, their livelihood, their, the agriculture, the land that they're going into. There's really no spiritual promises in that regard like we have uh, that God has given the church. These are all tied to the land and their way of living and their, the fruitfulness of their bodies, the fruitfulness of their fields and you know, being able to conquer their enemies. And of that, it's all very um, that earthbound in a sense, right? He says, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, verse 3, he says, this is what's going to happen if you do my commandments, if you observe them. Uh, and he says, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Yes, the offspring of your cattle, that wonderful uh, porterhouse steak and ribeye that comes from a, a really wonderful cow. Isn't it beautiful? So anyway, blessed be, verse 5, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and all which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. And here it is. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways... Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Jehovah, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods, and in the, fruitful, in the fruit of your body, and in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. And if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to do the right to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. And so you can see right here, God just showing them the blessings of obedience. And if you think of it, what a wonderful thing, just to be obedient to God. And you know, he doesn't really expect or demand from us just to, to, to love him. You know, so many people are trying so hard to, to do things according to the law, and they get so frustrated because they're doing it on the power of their flesh. And the wonderful thing about being a believer in Christ is we have the Holy Spirit in us. And, you know, sometimes we just need to relax and let him do it and not think about our sins so much. Because, you know, have you noticed that when you think about something, you, you, you know, it's still on the front part of your mind. Forget about it. Focus on him. And here's the secret if you focus on him, you're not going to be thinking about how long it's been since you did whatever. Is that, do you follow? And I know that's true in my own life. The more I focus on my problem, the more the problem is still in my, right in my face. But there's something wonderful about you know, just getting lost in, in Christ and, and looking to him and looking in his word and allowing him to change me. And the more I'm focused on him and the good things, when I behold his face, all this other stuff is not so significant anymore, and it no longer has a pull. It no longer has a draw on my life. But notice what it says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. We're just going to read, um, but it says, but, you, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he goes on for quite a long time, basically nullifying everything that we read about in the blessings of obedience, he turns it on its head and says, just the opposite is going to happen to you. But look at with me, uh, turn the page and go, go over to verse 58, and we're going to read that until verse 68. So the remainder of the chapter outlines the curses of disobedience, and many of them are, um, there's a lot more curses than there are blessings. Did you notice that? The curses for disobedience, are, it goes on for quite a while. And there's something about that psychologically that makes me want to rethink what I'm doing. 
<laughs> right? When God gives me a list this long, and, and these all look really good, and then I see this other list, and it's like, these are the curses for disobedience. I think I want to take list number one. Can I have door number one again, please? And, and, and that's a good thing to do. But notice, let's look at this. And I'm reading this on purpose because it's going to fit right into what we're going to look at. Notice verse 58. If you do not carefully observe, I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter. Um, you know, 27, 28, 29, and 30. Um, observe, if you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. If you do, if you do not carefully do that, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. Do you think God is serious about sin and obedience? He is. And he goes on and he says, You shall be left few in number if you disobey me, whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Now think about this, what God is doing. He's giving them the, the conditions, he's saying, this is what you need to do. And if you don't, then this is what's going to happen. Do you see the, the consequences, the, the results of, you know, what does the Bible say? For the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the wages of sin is death. And that's basically what he's saying here. If you do this, you're going you're gonna to go through, and I'm going to tear you, or be, you're going to be plucked off the land which I gave you. And tonight, the reason why this is so uh, poignant is because that's exactly what we're going to see. This is the watershed moment when we get into 2 Kings 17. This is the chapter that you want to remember, because this is when the northern ten tribes go into captivity and God, and the reason I'm reading these things to you in Deuteronomy, because God promised them, if you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this and you follow after strange gods and go after them, then this is going to be what's going to happen. And notice what he goes on further. He says, not only will you be plucked off the land which you go to possess, this promised land that I've given you, then the Lord, and it gets even worse, then the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples, among all the nations, from one end of the heaven or the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone, and among those nations you shall find no rest, no rest for the sole of your feet having a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You're going to fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning, you're going to say, oh, that it was evening. And in the evening, you're going to say, oh, I wish it was morning because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. And the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which, he, which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. What a horrible thing. Think of this. And what is God saying in this? The Lord warned them hundreds of years prior to this. Hundreds of years. God would have to now follow through on the consequences of their sin and disobedience. Now, this is not going to be an easy time tonight, but to me, it, 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 there, there's a comfort. I, I don't know if you feel this way, but as I look around in the world today, you know, the Bible says that in the last days there is going to be lawlessness, and because, um, and because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. And we see such lawlessness in our country and in the world, and we don't see a whole lot of justice, do we? We see people committing heinous crimes, being let go and on the streets, and the very next day going out and killing the person that they got arrested for earlier in the morning. These things are happening, and there's no justice. And there's something about righteousness and justice 
Do you find it in your heart delightful when even yourself, when you're busted for something that you've done, you don't like it, but you know there's a boundary and God has set those boundaries. And any good parent does that. A parent will give to their son or daughter boundaries and boundaries are wonderful because basically what God is saying, within these boundaries, enjoy life. (laughs) I'm going to give you some boundaries, some things to stay away from, but other than that, enjoy it. Have fun. Yes, Christians, you can have fun. But it's a different kind of fun than the world. The world thinks that having fun is going to a bar and getting slammered and then waking up in a ditch somewhere, you know, or waking up next to somebody that you've never seen before. People, weird, they think that that's a really good time. I don't think that's a good time. But you as believers, we could have such a wonderful time within the parameters that God has set before us. And feel free to play within the boundaries. You can do whatever you want, within reason, of course. But you're safe because I've set the borders. Enjoy it. And there's, so, there's a freedom about that. And so God is doing that. He's told them in advance. He's told them what they're going to do. And he's, 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 he's showing them that if they don't cling to him, this is the, the road they're going to go down to. Now, We've been going through First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and we've seen this familiar pattern of a king, you know, coming to power and then falling into sin, and then God allowing his enemies to raise up against him, and then they're either beaten really bad, and then they finally cry out to God, and then God raises up a deliverer or raises up a new king, and then you know they come to, and it's just this constant. The Book of Judges was like that. You've heard me say this, and so is Kings. It, it, it's just it's just this constant thing. And it's like we don't learn. You'd think, you know, and we have this wonderful blessing of having the Word of God before us because we're scanning over pages. And sometimes between events, there's decades, 100 years, 200 years, and we're seeing the whole thing condensed. And we see the same pattern. We see that that God means what he says, and he says what he means. He's a God of order. He's a God of justice. He's serious about obedience. He's serious about disobedience. And so the children of Israel now, as we look at 2 Kings chapter 17, it's a very long chapter, and we're just going to get right into it because it is long. Normally I like to read shorter chapters in its totality to kind of get the, the feel of what it is, and then we go back and take a look at it. But tonight we're not going to be able to do that. I would encourage you to read this over again and read these passages in, in Deuteronomy 27 through 30 and then, and then read 2 Kings 17. And it, the, the Deuteronomy passages really prepare you for what you're going to read now because God is basically saying, I told you, I told you, I told you. And now God is going to bring it full circle. I told you that I was going to do this if you did this, and now I've got to bring it full circle. I've got to come around and fulfill that which I've said. And do you think for a minute that God is happy? We know the passage is right. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He would rather us choose life, right? To choose life. Isn't that what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30? Toward the end there, he says, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. And boy, isn't that an anti-abortion message for you. Choose life. Thus saith the Lord. Because he said it. So look at verse 1 in chapter 2 Kings chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea... The son of Elah became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. So you have Ahaz ruling in the southern two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, otherwise known just as Judah. And then we have now Hoshea, who was Israel's last king, um, the last king in the northern ten tribes, and, uh, and he reigned for nine years. And, and Ahaz began uh, his vice regency under his father Jotham in 744 B.C. So the 12th year of Ahaz was 732. So you do 744 minus 12 and you come to 732. And so Hosea reigned from 732 till 722, a total of nine years. And, um, and notice uh, he was the 19th and the last king of the 9th dynasty of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Judah only had one dynasty, the Davidic dynasty, because they went from father to son, from father to son, father to son. There was no break in that. But in the, the northern kingdom, there were nine different dynasties. It wasn't all consecutive. And this was the final one, the ninth one, Hosea, the 19th king. And it was during his reign uh, that Shalmaneser V, the king of Assyria, came and besieged Syria for three years. And when they would besiege a town, what they would do is they would surround it with a military and they would starve the people out. They would cut off all of, their in, all of the places where they would go out of town to get food or water or whatever, and, um, and they would just surround you. And eventually they would starve you out. And there are so many prophets that talked about the calamities and the desperate things that the children of Israel would go through when they were led captive or when they were in a siege and the horrible things that they would have to do to survive. Mothers giving birth to their children or their stillborn children and then eating them because there was nothing else to eat. Think of that, ladies. I mean, it doesn't get more graphic and horrible than that. I mean, to me, that is like the worst thing that could ever happen. And, and a mother would, 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 would do that because she's starving. It's all they've got. And so Hosea became king because he murdered Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and so he, he obtained his crown by murder. And notice that Hosea now, this last king of the northern kingdom, in verse 2 it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. And this is just a way of God saying that he wasn't as bad as the other kings because Ahaz or you know, other kings were really horrible. And this guy was really bad. He was evil, but he wasn't as bad. Do you understand that if you're bad and you don't come to Christ, you're still going to hell? And if you're really, really horrible, I mean, just decrepit and miserable and horrible, you're still going to hell too. So God doesn't look at it like, well, he, you know, he might make it because he's only a little bit evil. No, he's he just, he just a way of comparison, comparing another king to another king. Like, this guy did this much horrible stuff, but this guy... He's got a catalog pretty long. But notice in verse 3, So Shalmaneser, who was the king of Assyria, and Assyria at this time was really dominant, and it was in the northeast of, of, of Israel, in the northeast where Nineveh and all that was the capital of uh, Assyria. And so Shalmaneser V, the king of Assyria, came up against Hosea, meaning the northern ten tribes, specifically at Samaria, where their capital was. And notice, Hosea became his vassal, and he paid him tribute money. So in order to, you know, he's like the big bully on the block, Shalmaneser V. And so Hosea is going, you know, just be our friend, and we'll, you know, don't attack us, and we'll give you anything you want. And that was the agreement but notice what happened. And the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, he uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea. For he had sent messengers to So, and that's a, a proper noun, So, or a name. So is his name. How do you think about it? Hey, So, So, so what? So, so what? <laughs> so his name is So, the king of Egypt, and he brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Right? So in other words, our, you haven't paid your friendship dues, Hosea. Now I'm going to, you know, there's going to be a problem here. And so he shuts him up in jail. And then it says, now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and he went up to Samaria and he besieged it for three years. Now, it's uncertain whether this, whether it was Shalmaneser or Sargon uh, the second, whether he concluded the siege, uh, which finally ended the northern kingdom. Shalmaneser V, he reigned uh, for about uh, five years, five or six years. He reigned from 727 to 722 BC. But Shalmaneser, when he came to lay siege on Samaria for three years, somewhere in that three-year period, Shalmaneser had to go back to Assyria and his own people murdered him sometime during that three-year siege because he imposed taxation on the city of Asher, which is the holy city. And so the people killed him, and he died. Uh, it was probably a coup for his life. And then his son, Shalmaneser's son, Sargon, became king. He's often known as Sargon II. 
He's Shalmaneser's son. He reigned from 722 to 705 BC. And, and this is really when Israel, meaning the northern ten tribes, they went uh, Sargon, or Shalmaneser started it, but then Sargon, his son, came finally and um, raided the northern ten tribes and took the people captive. And so notice in verse 6, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, and again, this is either more than likely at Sargon at this point, he took Samaria and he carried Israel away to Assyria. Notice, he didn't just slaughter them, he carried them away captive. He placed them in, in areas uh, northeast of, of, way northeast of Israel, um, and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And one thing you have to understand about the Assyrians, their policy, whenever they conquered or, or, or a people, or they would displace them. They would remove them from their land, um, and that would be one of the ways that they would conquer them. And think of, think of how awful that would be, because now they've got slave labor, you know, Assyria now has a bunch of Jews that they can use as slave labor, killed some of them, led some of them away captive. Now they got free, um, free labor. And the people are displaced. And the Assyrians, they were cruel. They were one of the most cruel people on the planet, and they did many barbarous things to their captives. One excerpt detailed some of the things that they did, and it says, A captured king was taken to the capital and compelled to pull the royal chariot of triumph as a way of mocking that king who was deposed from his throne. And there were other things that they did. Rings were put through their lips or their noses. Sometimes their hands, their feet, their noses, and ears were cut off, and they were blinded by having their eyes poked out with a spear and their tongues were taken from or torn from their mouths prisoners were skinned alive and set on fire it sounds like a pretty bad group of guys all they needed is motorcycles and they could be a hell's angels too right horrible individuals and their skins were also hung near the enemy city gates in order to collect tribute that'd be a good way Pay money to us, and this won't happen to you. Sounds like a good plan, right? So the Lord allowed the ruthless Assyrians to capture the northern kingdom because of their sin. In fact, there's inscriptions where Sargon II, in an inscription called the Korsabad inscription, it's recorded where he said himself, Samaria I besieged. I captured 27,290 of her inhabitants I carried away. And so here he is boasting. And, and the, the Assyrians kept great records. They kept great records. So now as we go through verse 7 through verse 23, God gives a summary. And this is just how good God is. And even though this is difficult to hear, folks, God is making them accountable. He's, he's saying, I'm about to do this, and here is why I'm doing it. And you'll notice this in the prophets too, like in Jeremiah or Isaiah. God lays out for them exactly what they were doing. He tells them what, the, you know, what not to do, and then when they finally do it, he says, now this is going to be your punishment. This is what is going to, and, and this is the reason why you are being punished. And see, isn't it good as a parent? That's what we do to our kids. You know, you don't go up and you spank your child and they say, what did I do wrong? Are you going to say, well, I don't know. I just felt like doing it. I mean, I mean, maybe your father did that to you, but my, whenever I got spanked, I was usually told what I was doing, sometimes while I was getting spanked. My mother would tell me exactly what it was that I was doing wrong, and I got the message she applied the Board of Education to the seat of learning. Right? So verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, so here, God is giving them the reasons. This is why you're going into, into captivity, Israel. Your Lord, 
who had brought you up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. So they weren't only worshiping these pagan gods, but they were making up gods as they went. And also the children of Israel, verse 9, secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fort city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. These, these symbols of idolatry, these images, these idols. And God told them that they were to worship in one place. Remember, we looked at that in Deuteronomy chapter 12. What did God tell them? When you come into the land, you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. This is uh, Deuteronomy 12 verse 5. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. For there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. All of these things, I want you to do it in a specific place, and I'll tell you when you get there. And God did. And that place was ultimately and finally in Jerusalem, at the Temple Mount, on the altar. All of the sacrifices were to take place there. Not under every hill and under every green tree. No, it was to be in one place. One place. And then verse 11, back in our text, says, There... On these high places, they burned incense on all the high places. Notice, underline this, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away from before them. Notice that, underline that. They did this like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. Now, in Genesis 15, you might want to make a little note off the side of your Bible. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13. Notice what happened when God was giving, making a covenant with Abraham. And God said to Abraham in verse 13 of Genesis 15, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Where did they serve 400 years? In Egypt, right? Because and, and th- think of the time frame. He's talking to Abraham. So, you know, the, the exodus hadn't happened yet. So back here, God is telling him that your people are going to, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them, meaning the Egyptians, will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Did God judge Egypt? Yes, he did. By causing them to go out, he judged the Egyptians. He poured out all those those plagues upon Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. We know that. It's recorded for us. But then he says, and also the nation, uh, that nation I will judge. Afterward, they, speaking of your people, the Jews, the children of Israel, shall come out with great possessions, and they did. God is prophesying that it's going to happen. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here on this mountain, Abraham, in Canaan, where you're at right now. And why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. These are the nations. Remember in verse 11 when it says, There they burned incense in all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. Yes, the Canaanites, the Amorites, their iniquity hadn't become full yet. God gave them opportunity. He gave them much time to turn from it. Do you realize how many years has gone by now? At least 400 that God is counting. At least four generations, but they'd been doing it farther along than that. But God's just saying, in four generations, your people are going to come out of Egypt, and they're going to come into that land, and I'm going to use my people to judge those people. Why? Because they're sinners exceedingly. They're giving their kids over to the fire and and sacrificing them. Postpartum, after they've been delivered, they're sacrificing them to pagan gods. We, We visit a place when we go to Israel up in Megiddo, and the altar, they've uncovered it. It's a Canaanite altar going back to like 2500, 2600 BC, before the Jews even showed up. They were sacrificing children on this altar, and you can see it there today. The nations, 
And you've become like those nations, Israel. You've become like them. So verse 12 back in our text. So they, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. I mean, didn't God give them the, the Ten Commandments? And what was the very first commandment in Exodus chapter 20? The first six verses. Yes, I, and God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall serve no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Not that God's got a jealousy problem, He deserves our praise. The Jews ought to have acknowledged him. I mean, he deserves everything, God. He deserves all the praise. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation notice of those who hate me. Important. There's other passages that don't say for those that hate me, but in the original context, we, we, we know what, it, what that means because God doesn't cause the sin of the fathers, you know, taking the punishment out on the, on the sons. I mean, sometimes there's, there's consequences that a father goes through that the son experiences. I mean, that's definitely true, but God doesn't judge the son for the sins of the father. But for those who hate him, four generations that hate him, father and son, you better believe it. They're going to go through troubles. And notice back in our text in verse 13, yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets. Notice, God even sent them accountability. He sent them prophets, every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, God says, notice the heart of a father here. Nevertheless, they would not hear. But they stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he had made with their fathers, and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols. They became idolaters. And they went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And uh, right in your margin of your Bible, a passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 8. And I'm going to read it to you because, again, I'm just stacking the deck as we get into this because there is so much accountability here. Do you see that? God himself told them. And then when they were messing up, God sent prophets to tell them to turn away, to turn away, to turn away. They didn't listen. And finally, there has, the hammer has to drop. And that's the scary part. That's the part we don't like. It's the part I don't like, when the consequence comes due. But God is a loving God. And see, you and I, we don't have to face God in his wrath anymore because we believe in him and his, he's taken his punishment out on his son and not on us. Aren't you glad you'll never have to stand before the judge of all creation? Everybody smile because that's a really good thing to smile about. You'll never see it, folks. You'll never see it. The worst that you're going to see is what happens on this planet. That's it. That's the worst it's going to get. But then, glory, forever and ever. It'll never end. Hang on to that. In Deuteronomy 7, you know, and why is this? Because uh, it says there, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess. Again, remember, in Deuteronomy, before they even went into the promised land, and he says, when you go in to possess the land, you've cast out the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Notice, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, what are you going to do? you got to smoke them all. You shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or take their daughter to your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And do you see, and you can read the rest of that, but God is basically saying, this is why I wanted, when I had you go into the promised land, I gave you a very specific command. That's why God was so hard on Saul when he went against the Amalekites. Remember that? He went against the Amalekites and they captured Agag, right? And remember, he didn't kill Agag. 
He didn't kill, he didn't do what God had said. And remember, Samuel was the one who said, what is this bleeding of the sheep I hear? And who is this guy with the crown on his head? You were supposed to destroy all of it, everything, the king as well. So why is he here? And Samuel took care of business. And God said, amen. Because God wanted that to be done to begin with. And yet he didn't do it. And see, the children of Israel had the same problem. As they got into the promised land, they were supposed to wipe out these seven nations. Why? Is it just because God was having a bad day? No, it's because of their sin that had mounted up to heaven. And God says, now is the time. And aren't you, isn't it interesting to you that God used his people to judge somebody else, and then finally God judges them for the same thing? He's not a respecter of persons. He's not partial to one group or another. If you mess around, you're going to have troubles. He used his own people to, to, to eradicate them, and they didn't fully do it. It caused them problems. They married. They intermarried with them. Their kids got wrapped up in their idolatry, and it caused problems. And ultimately, it caused them to be where they're at right now as we read this. Because they didn't do the job, those little things, those little insignificant, seemingly, in, seemingly insignificant acts of disobedience, it led to this. It led to them being fully engrossed in idolatry because of the nations that they didn't drive out. Now God says, now do you see why I said to wipe out everything? Because if you if you'd done it, you wouldn't be what, what's happening now. Or it, it, it or it'd be very much less anyways. You probably could have gone on for hundreds of years, but no, you allowed them to infect you like a cancer, and now I've got to deal with a cancer. But I told you in advance. I sent my prophets telling. And now the hammer has to drop. So verse 16, back in our text. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God. And see, God again telling them why he's bringing them into judgment. They left the commandments. They made for themselves a molded image and two calves made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 12, it was during that time that Jeroboam made those two different golden calves. He put one in Dan in the north and he put another one in Bethel and they worshipped them. Remember that? They weren't supposed to do that. And then, and then in verse 17, and they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. We saw that last week with Ahaz. And they practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves. You heard that phrase, you sold your soul to the devil? This is where you get it from right here. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his sight. And there was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. And also Judah Notice, God says, okay, I'm dealing with Israel, but look, what, look, look at the problem with Judah. And Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but they walked in the statutes of Israel, which they had made. Now, here's the unfortunate thing. Judah did not learn anything from their northern brothers. They learned nothing. And so about 116 years later, 116 years later, God would send Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon, Babylonians to come and raid Jerusalem and take and burn their temple, kill many of them, and then take the rest of them captive. He came in 606 BC and he besieged them for 20 years. He tried to starve out Israel, but guess what? Israel's got a water supply right in the, on the inside walls. It's called the Gehon Spring. We actually go there in Israel. We, we walk through the tunnel, and you can actually see where the water shaft was and all this stuff. They had water on the inside. The Babylonians are going, when are these people going to die? Well, they got water, and they had plenty of storage of food. They were just waiting for these guys to go away. They're like, hmm. So God brings... 606 B.C., for 20 years, they tried to starve them out, besieging them. And then finally, they're like in 586, they said, okay, that's it, man. We waited 20 years to starve these people out. We're going to start bringing in the battering rams and the trebuchets and the, the things that are, we're just going to go in there. We're going to raise it to the ground. They did. They burn it. They took uh, three different deportments of Jews, the really finest of the Jews, captive, uh, uh, Ezekiel was one of them, Daniel and his three men, the, the, the king's seed, the, the finest of the finest. They took them, and you know what? We read in Daniel what happened there. 
So back in verse 20, it says, And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel. He afflicted them, delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David. And they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, then, uh, uh, of Nebat king. And then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord. And we know that he did that through his golden calves. He made them commit a great sin. Verse 22, for the children of Israel walked in all of the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from them. And that is a true statement. As we've been going through First and Second Kings, they never departed from their idolatry. From the very beginning of Jeroboam all the way down to Hosea, this final king that we're looking at tonight, They never, ever, ever recovered. They continued in those things. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said, by all the servants, the prophets. And so Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is is to this day. Now, I want to share something with you because right now you've come to a Bible study tonight and you're thinking it's really nasty out, the ice all over the roads, and you've come to tell me about death and judgment. I'm so happy to be here. But I got some hope for you. Because look at this. Think of the love of God. God had told them. God gave them hope for the future. Even even after their captivity, it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You might want to write a little note in here in your Bible Because this is encouraging, and I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 10. Notice what it says. Uh, Give me a second here. I need to... Okay. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. Notice the grace of God. This is, this, is, this is huge because we've been, I want to balance this with grace because it's pretty heavy right now. <laughs> this is not easy. Now, it, can, it shall come to pass, remember, they're on the, when this was being spoke to them, they were still on the eastern side of the Jordan getting ready to go over into the promised land. So God tells them, it shall come to pass. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, God's already anticipating, prophesying that this is what they're going to do, but they have a choice. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I commanded you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. When you do that, that the Lord your God will bring you back from the captivity and have compassion on you. And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Hasn't he done that? I mean, you know, when, uh, when the siege happened in, in, in Israel, the, many people defected down into the southern two tribes. Many people did. There was a great conglomerate of people that left there before Syria came and destroyed them and took them captive. And so Judah and Benjamin now have got a mishmash of all these different tribes, a mixture of them. And ultimately, when God came to take Judah captive through Babylon, or through Babylon, what did Jeremiah 25, 25 tell us? That he, they're going to be there for 70 years. And they were there 70 years. And guess what? God brought them back. He told them that he would do it, and he was faithful. He told them 70 years. Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem when the children of Israel were all in captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel was in Babylon. Jeremiah stayed back in in Jerusalem. And God gave a word, and it's written for us in Jeremiah 25. And that letter would be sent to Babylon, and they would find out 70 years. And here's why 70 years. And I won't go into all that right now because we don't have time. But he gave them a very specific point. 70 years, you're coming back to this place. You're going to rebuild your temple. Hang in there. While you're there, have children. Plant your vineyards. Obey And stay away from the false gods. And many did. They learned their lesson. When they came back from their captivity, they didn't have issues with idolatry like they did before. God had rooted that from them. And verse 4 here, uh, again, in uh, where are we? Uh, Deuteronomy 30. 
If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. Notice that. Like a, like a, like a shepherd goes for, you know, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He's going to do that for Israel. He's going to gather them. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you, and then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He'll prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul that you may live and see that's there it is you know and um, what a wonderful thing what a wonderful thing so look at verse 24 now this is interesting we're going to go through this pretty quickly then the king of Assyria brought notice the method of what they did this is really telling the king of Assyria, he brought the people. Again, this is probably Sargon II. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthath, uh, Kutha, I'm sorry, Ava, uh, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. So do you see what they did? Assyria came, they took the Jews out of the land, put them in other places, and then took other peoples, Gentiles, pagans, brought them into the land and said, hey, the houses are ready, the vineyards are already there, you guys tend it. Hey, great, this is great. A land flowing with milk and honey. Go figure. Happy are we. <laughs> and they did. And so they populated these pagans, these, the heathen, the Gentiles, and it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Of course, because they're pagans. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. So they're very superstitious, these people. So indeed, they are killing them because they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. So they're really thinking of Je Jehovah, they're really thinking of him like every other god that they make mad, and, and, then, they, and then something bad happens, and then they're like, we gotta, we got to worship this god so that we appease him. But they fail to realize that Jehovah is God over all. Just serve the one. Get rid of the others, right? So the king of Assyria commanded, saying, well, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there, and let him go and dwell there. Let him teach them the rituals of the god of the land. And then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and he dwelt in Bethel and he taught them how they should fear the Lord. What a great blessing. This is almost like unusual, isn't it? He brings these pagans in. They're, they're, the lions are killing them. We're upsetting their God. We'll send one of the priests and tell you the good things that, you know, the, the ways that you guys ought to worship. And so the priest is going, what kind of gig is this? I get to go back and tell them about the Lord? And so it seemed like a good thing. But there's always a fly in the ointment, isn't there? However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities which, where they dwell, the men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. These are all idols. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartek. And the Sepharvaites burned their children in fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. And so they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrifice for them in the shrines of the high places. Now, in verse 32, when it says that they feared the Lord, it doesn't mean that they feared the Lord. It means that they reverenced him, but he's just one of many. We got all of these gods, he's just one of them. So they feared him, but they should have made him their only fear. But they didn't do that. They continued to sacrifice on high places, do all their crazy weird stuff. So they feared the Lord, God, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord. Notice, it almost sounds like he's schizophrenic. First he says they're, they're, they're fearing the Lord, then they're not fearing the Lord. But do you understand the difference? They feared him because he was one of them, but then they really didn't fear him because they weren't making him central. Does that make sense? And that's really the way we have to take that. Nor did they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, and we read this in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 
uh, or um, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, was it? Um, where it says, um, you shall not fear their gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. Actually, Exodus 20 told us that. But the Lord... You're supposed to, but the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. He's not just going to be one of many gods. No, he's got to be the God. And see, today we have many gods in America. And in fact, that's why I think that our country is in such a mess. We've, we've taken God out of everything. We've taken God out of the schools. We've taken him out of public life. They're fighting so hard to remove God everywhere they can. Removing the monuments that have the name of God in them. If they had their way, they'd remove the plaques from Washington, D.C. and the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. They'd rip those things off. They've already done the statues. Our country, folks, and this is what saddens me the most, as I look at what has happened to Israel and I see America going down the same road. Ruth Graham said to Billy Graham in a kind of off-the-cuff statement when she was reading one of his articles, she says, wow, if God doesn't judge America, then he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And it's true. We've gone a very far away, and we are reaping what we have sown. I'm not talking about the church so much. Now, should the church repent? Are there things in our lives, uh, not only in Calvary Chapel of Rochester, but in the church in America, are there things that we really need to get, we need to clean house, and we need to repent, and we need to turn back to God, and no longer play footloose and fancy free with sin in the world, and think that we can somehow have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. We need to get both feet into the kingdom and serve God 100% with our mouth, with our actions, with our thoughts, and say, I'm done with that stuff. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but where is the heart of America? Where have we gone? We, we're no different than Israel. And God is allowing us. Do you see the decay of America? Folks, you know what? Pray for revival. The God, and I'm not getting on anybody's case here, okay, or anybody listening or who may be listening, but you know what? If the shoe fits, I need to wear it. If there's something in my life that I know I'm doing wrong and I've been doing it for a long time and I've gotten away with it, nobody knows about it except for God, now today is the day to take serious stock in your life and say, Lord, I need to be done with this. I'm looking at all of the, the things that are going on and you need a, a church that, that loves you. You need a church that is willing to go out and to share the truth and love with people. Forgetting all the politics. Forget about the politics. There's something more important than politics. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my country. You know I'm a patriot. But listen, the most important thing is not whether you're a Democrat or Republican or independent. The main thing is that you're a born-again, blood-bought Christian. And there's only one way to do that, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we have to turn from our sin. Are you willing to turn from your sin and let the Lord purge and, and, and purify. He's purified us, don't get me wrong. In, in our standing in, 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 in his presence, his blood has covered us. But practically speaking, we know that there are things that just aren't right that I'm living. Things that I'm saying, things that I'm doing, things that I'm allowing in my life. And it's time, church in America, we got to stand up. Because God, if he did this to his own people... What does the Bible say? Judgment must first begin at the house of God. And if it happens there, what's going to be like for the unbeliever? He wants to purify. He's purified us. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but we have to step up to the plate and be done with the idols in our lives, the things that we know are wrong. Verse 36 we're getting close to the end here. Thank you for your patience. But the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched harm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice, and the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandments which he wrote for you. He shall, 
You shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. Now, again, this is the law, and we don't have to worry about fulfilling the law. Jesus fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that we can just continue to commit adultery because we know that that's a sin. We can't continue to do those things, and we need the Spirit of God within us, don't we? We can't do this in our flesh. And Jesus has already paid the price for us. So, since he has done this for us, then I ought to live my life because of all that he has done for me, think of it, you, Christian, will never see a day in hell. You will never see a day in hell, not even a moment, not even a preview, ever. You'll never, ever, ever, ever see it. For eternity, you'll never see it. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. If that is what he did to me, how great a salvation is that? Oh my goodness. Then I need to take that and go, God, help me. Oh, help me. Cleanse me. Cleanse this vessel. Change me from the inside out. Never let me get away with my sin. Bust me when when I'm doing something wrong, Lord. Privately, please. Don't do it on television. Don't do it on the, you know, whatever. Just deal quietly with me. And isn't he gracious like that? He is. He's a very loving God. He loves you. He loves me. But the Lord your God you shall fear. Verse 39, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they... They did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. So he was just one God of many, just like they did in Mecca. In Mecca, remember uh, Muhammad, he chose the moon god. Out of all the different gods in Mecca, he chose one because he knew that there had to be a, a rallying around one god because there were too many factions. We need one god. We'll just choose the moon god, Allah. He chose Allah And he based his religion around that. And that's what Islam is today. Allah is the moon god. He is not God. He's not Jehovah God. They call him God, but there's a big difference. You know this. God is a very generic term. Ah, but once you mention Jesus, they all go away. (laughs) They all go away, and he's front and center. Jehovah God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Love this. One final thing. And so these nations feared the Lord again, just one God of many, yet they served their carved images, so it wasn't a wholehearted thing. They just they feared him, but they feared the others too. And also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. Now he's speaking of what had happened in Samaria, right? Because again, let me just summarize this. Shalmaneser comes. He lays a siege for three years. He ends up getting killed. His son comes, Sargon II. He takes them all captive takes them back, leading them out with hooks in their mouth, in their nose, and their feet, cutting off their, you know, just weird, wacky stuff, taking them away, and then backfilling the people with people from Babylon and all these other nations. And then now fast forward several hundred years, and now you get to the time of Jesus. And do you remember the three different landmarks in Israel as a whole? Israel in the time of Jesus was broken up in the southern part of Judah, Samaria, and Galilee. Samaria, that's the place where any good Jew wouldn't go up. They would go around to the, De- or the, the, the Jordan River. They would, go along the, they would cross the Jordan River, bypass Samaria, and then cross over and go into Galilee. Because they hated the Samaritans. And why did they hate the Samaritans? It tells us right here because when... Assyria took the northern ten tribes, they backfilled them with other pagan nations and peoples, Gentiles, and the other Jews, they intermarried with them and had kids for a few hundred years, and they were called the Samaritans. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 4, I must needs go through Samaria, because there's a woman there at a well, and I've got a meeting with her, and his disciples are going, you're going to go through Samaria? All the other, you know, 
all the starched you know, guys, the Orthodox Jews, they're going to go around. They're not going to be defiled by going into Samaria. That's why Samaria had such a bad rap. You know, nobody wanted to go through Samaria. They didn't want to have any dealings with the Samaritans. And that's why the, the Samaritan, remember the parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan? That was why it was such a stick in the eye to the Jews because they were supposed to be the ones that are caring for the guy. The priest was supposed to be the guy. The, the, the religious people were supposed to be the ones caring for this man who had been beaten up and near dead. But who was it that ministered to the Jew? It was a Samaritan, the one that they hated, who they called half-breeds. He was the one who took care of the man. Ouch. That's why the Samaritans in Jesus' day were so looked down upon because they continued to intermingle. So they were considered an unclean people. And so let's take stock in this tonight. This is a really difficult chapter, but it's a watershed chapter. And it's the end. It's the end, at least, for the northern ten tribes. So now, going forward, we're going to see 116 years of Judah trying to work it out. And God bringing great revival, and then another evil king. And then God raising up another great king, and doing really great things. And finally, they're plunged into darkness, and God says, okay, that's it. And then the Babylonians come, because the Babylonians... I think it was in 612 B.C. that the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians. And now Babylon was the main power in the world. And that's why it was Babylon that came down into Jerusalem and Judah and took the southern two tribes captive. Why? Because they didn't pay attention. They didn't learn from what happened to their northern brothers. So let's stand together. And, and I would ask you to pray. You know, pray for, um, pray for the church in America. Pray for us. Pray for yourselves. Tonight, tomorrow morning, let's, let, let's, let's get at it, folks. Let's get at it. Let, let's really take a serious look at our lives and say, Lord, I... Do you ever get to that point in your life where you just, you know, you're tired of of just being beaten sometimes by the enemy. He just comes and he, he whacks you over the head. Maybe it's with an alcohol problem. Maybe it's a, 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 an addiction of some kind. And he just, he just keep beating you with it. And you're asking God to forgive you. And, you know, continue to cry out to God. But, you know, let's pray in earnest. Say, Lord, deliver us. Help your bride. Help us to be what you want us to be, to be all that you want us to be. Lord, we do that tonight. We come before you. We ask that you would make us those examples, Lord, that that fire on the earth. For however long we have yet, Lord, would you make us that fire? Would you set us on fire again? Would you burn a hole in our heart, God, for the lost? And, and, And to hate, Lord, sin, to hate it first in our own life to remove the plank that's in our eye that we could take out the wooden piece in our neighbor's eye. Lord, would you do all of these things? And Lord, you've given us such great warnings. And Lord, if you've done this for your people, Lord, we know that, Lord, America, Lord, her sins are many and her sins are great. We need your help, Lord. We cry out to you as the church in America. And we ask that you'd save us, Lord. We know that we're saved, God. We, we know that we're eternally saved, but save us and cleanse and purify us by your blood, Jesus. Make us yours and make us those ambassadors, those lights for you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. May God bless you. I pray that you have a safe trip. And remember the love of God.